Well, we're back to Luke 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Luke 11, where we are looking at a section of Scripture which teaches us how to pray. Let's say that on some Saturday you have off, you go someplace for lunch, you know, one of those little restaurants that allows you to kind of sit out there in front of the restaurant by the street and you're just eating there, relaxing on a day off and up drives this big black limo and uh, a chauffeur gets out and goes around to the other side of the car, opens the door and a very important man in a black suit and, and a big shiny briefcase comes walking right up to you and says, may I sit down? I have a question I want to ask you. And you say, well, sure, fine. (laughs) So he starts fiddling with the lock on the briefcase and gets it open, spins the briefcase around and he pries it open. He he lets you look inside and inside there's just bundles of $100 bills. And he says, all the money in this suitcase is yours. If you can answer this one question. When Jesus in Luke 11, (laughs) 2. Said to pray. To the father. Your kingdom come. What kingdom was he talking about? Now, the question is, would you go home with the money? That is the question. Now, what's interesting is when you start looking at the Bible and you start reading the Bible, the kingdom is all over the place. I mean, the Bible is constantly talking about kingdoms. And yet so many Christians have no idea what the kingdom is. They go home with their lunch in them. That's it. And I find that interesting. I, I, I wonder to myself what goes through a person's mind when they come and they read kingdom here and kingdom there and kingdom there. I mean, what's going through your mind? Anything? Does anything go through there? Does what What's happening in there? And why is it that so many Christians seem to be so ignorant of one of the most frequently mentioned topics in all the Bible? Well, the primary problem is preachers. Most preachers don't preach on the kingdom. And the reason they don't preach in the kingdom is because it's very complex. It's a very difficult subject to explain, especially a subject to explain in a short period of time. See, there's always this problem. You're a preacher and you say to yourself, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a series. Well, by the time you get to the end of the series, everybody forgot what happened at the beginning. You know, it's like examining a tree, you know, millimeter at a time. You know, you start where the the roots and you slowly work up and you get to the top of the tree and people go, man, I see that the little piece of that leaf at the top. But what are we looking at again? It's very hard to get a big picture of the kingdom kind of in a condensed form in a way that people can gra- grasp it. And so for that reason, pastors just kind of stay away from the kingdom theme. For instance, in my library, I have three volumes, three tomes, 700 pages each in very fine, microscopic, eye-straining print written in very technical language, which is the life work of a man named George Peters who wrote three volumes entitled The Theocratic Kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. And you, you look at those three volumes and you say to yourself, you know, I don't need to know the kingdom that well. (laughs) 
that's not that important to me in my life. Well, there are some simpler works on the kingdom and uh, on prophecy, and uh, I've told the bookstore to order those. And so if I kind of pique your interest this morning, you can take some time to digest some kingdom information at a slower rate than what I am going to give you this morning, because what I am going to do this morning is do something I tell my seminary students never to do, and that's give people too much information. I mean, only a madman would try to cover the kingdom in one Sunday. So I'm applying for the title. (laughs) And at the risk of creating great confusion in your mind, I'm going to give you too much information. I'm just confessing at the beginning. But I want to give you the big picture. And I can't give you the big picture without at least surveying the details. And so I'm going to do my best to make it simple And yet, if you're sitting there thinking, man, this is too much, you can always log on to our website, go to um, classes, go to the the class on prophecy and get handouts and diagrams and listen to messages where I go through it really slow. But for this morning, we're eating the whole elephant in one fell swoop. Now, look at Luke 11. We know that in verses 1 through 13, in Luke 11, Jesus is talking about a uh, bunch of issues related to prayer. And in the beginning of the chapter, he gives what is called the disciples' prayer or Lord's prayer. We learn from verse 1 that Jesus was faithful to pray and that his disciples wanted to pray and that we should be like Jesus, diligent to pray and wanting to learn how to pray. And then in verses 2 through 4, we begin to look at the disciples' prayer. And Jesus says the first thing we are to do is to know who to pray to. And Jesus says we are to pray to the Father. That's a very um, intimate, endearing term, almost like dearest daddy type of a term that we are to approach God being his children as his children and talk to him because he wants us to talk to him. And then the first primary high priority prayer request is that God's name, the father's name would be hallowed, which we learn means that it is to be reverence, respected. Basically, it lives out as glorify God in all that you say or do really glorify God in all of your creation. You're basically asking God to make sure he gets all the glory, which is the whole purpose for everything existing. So we saw that. Now look at Luke 11, and we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 and stop where we're going to be at this morning. It says that it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now. At the risk of committing sermonic suicide, I'm going to inflict you now with too much information. I'm sorry about this, but it's just the way it is. Now, I've just got four little questions. Four questions we are going to ask and answer, but the answers are somewhat complex and increasingly so. So at the beginning, I'm going to go fast. And at the end, I'm going to go slower. Because at the beginning, we're just getting to the place to where we need to be to talk about Your kingdom come. So get ready, get lucid, get ready to absorb the first question. What is the kingdom? Pretty basic, huh? What is the kingdom? Let's start off with the basics. You know, if you're going to pray your kingdom come, you should probably know what you're praying for. Well, a kingdom 
must have four components. And these are them. Number one, a kingdom must have a king, a ruler. That's pretty clear. Secondly, a kingdom must have an area, a territory, a sphere of dominion. That's pretty easy. A kingdom must have subjects, people ruled over. And finally, a kingdom must have the exercise of the king's authority. He must be actively exercising his power and authority. You have that? You got yourself a kingdom. Okay, now we know what a kingdom is. We know that we're praying to the father, asking the father that his kingdom comes, which means that we're praying for the father's kingdom. Now, just to give you an example of that, in First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12, you don't need to turn it, I'll just read it. I'll just, this is one of those texts that has all four of those elements in it. Let me just point them out. I'll just read these two verses. David's praying and he says, yours, O Lord, there's the ruler, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in heaven on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself, there's the exercise of the ruler, you exalt yourself, as head over all, there's the territory, God rules over everything, all, both riches and honor come from you, you rule over all, there's the territory again, in your hand is the power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone, there's the subjects, so you've got the king, the territory, the exercise, the rule, and the subject. Those are the four components that create a kingdom. So now that we know what a kingdom is, now we need to ask ourselves, what is the Father's kingdom? Because if we're praying for your kingdom to come, and we're praying to the Father, we're praying for the Father's kingdom to come. So really, what is the Father's kingdom? And when we look at this, and we do a little search in the New Testament, and try and find other places where the Father's kingdom is mentioned, um, we begin to discover some interesting things. Because as we search through the Bible, we find that there's more than just one kingdom mentioned. There's even kingdoms in, in, that people see in the Bible that I don't even see there. And so I want to talk about six different kingdoms that have been proposed so that you can kind of understand um, just a little bit about the different kinds. So when you're reading your Bible, you come across the term, don't just assume they all mean the same thing. The first kingdom is what is called God's universal kingdom. And this is uh, this is uh, a pretty easy one to understand. It's basically God rules everything. Uh, heavens, earth, all they contain. Um, for instance, Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. So in other words, in one Respect, God has a universal kingdom over all things. Bingo, next one. The next one is a little bit uh, scarier just because the term that they call it by, and I'm going to throw out the term here, but it's easy to understand. It's not too complex. It's called the theocratic government or theocratic monarchy kingdom. And this is, uh, for instance, uh, the, the word theocratic, theo, theos is God in the Greek. And so theocratic means a God ruled 
something. God is ruling. So if you have a theocratic government, it is a God-ruled government, or a theocratic monarchy is a God ruling through a king. And we can look back in Israel's history, and we know that God wrote um, his law, gave him the sacrificial system, and he basically ruled his people through the sacrificial system. That as long as they obeyed the word of God, did what the word of God said, then God was having his say through the government system. That would be a theocratic government. And then later on, when they got David, who is a godly king, David was told by God what to do, and then David did it, so God was ruling the nation Israel through the godly king David. That is a theocratic monarchy. That's not too difficult either. Then we enter into some fog. And that is when we get to another kind of kingdom that people see in the Bible. It's called the spiritual kingdom. Now, it's never really called that anywhere, but different verses seem to indicate that there may be a kind of spiritual kingdom comprised of all believers from Adam until the end of the age. This kind of, it's kind of a fellowship of, of all believers. Think of it as, as the totality of all believers are comprise a spiritual kingdom. For instance, if you turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, I'm just going to give you one verse here. There's not a lot of verses, but there's a few that they like to turn to. And this is one of them because it seems to be very clear. It can be understood in a couple ways, but let me just give it to you as they would describe it. And then I'll tell you what I think about that. But um, Colossians 1.13, Paul writes this, speaking to believers, for he, that is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here, uh, unbelievers um, are described as being rescued when they become believers Rescued from this domain, this kingdom of darkness, the kingdom ruled by Satan, the God of this world, when they're held captive by Satan to do his will, and they are transferred to, Paul says, the kingdom of his beloved son, which you would call the kingdom of Christ, since that's his beloved son. And so, obviously, uh, you could understand why people would say well uh, there is some kind of kingdom happen here because this text here and there's a few others say that we have been upon faith in christ transferred from one kingdom to another that's what the text clearly says yet it could be said that both christ and um satan uh have this dual kingdom for instance um some people would say well you know I don't know about the spiritual kingdom thing here because where's the territory? If Satan is ruling now on earth and Satan is the God of this world and the earth is Satan's territory, then where is the territory of the spiritual kingdom? Sure, we can say that God's ruling the kingdom or Christ is ruling the kingdom. And yes, we can say that believers are submitting to him. But where is the the territory? Well, it could be that there's dual rule over the same territory for instance god we already know that god is ruler over everything which includes the earth and so satan though he is the god of this world and ruling the overall system has a kingdom underneath the overall kingdom of god and we could just say that christ is ruling through the through believers um here on earth at the same time satan is ruling unbelievers and there's kind of a dual kingdom thing going on at the same time now, uh, to me, that just doesn't 
work very good. I mean, it's granted we are literally kingdom saints when we come to Christ. That is, we're saints who will inherit the kingdom. Christ is literally our king and Christ is literally literally exercising authority over believers um, now through his word, through the church. But the debated question is, are believers uh, kingdom saints waiting for the kingdom of Christ that they will certainly inherit or Are they actually now in a spiritual kingdom waiting for a future kingdom when Christ will reign on earth? You see, that's the issue. For instance, uh, the Bible sometimes speaks of of, uh, things as already having occurred or as a present reality which aren't yet fulfilled. For instance, in Isaiah 53, if you go through Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of Jesus' death, you remember what it says, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and he was crushed and he was and it speaks of the death of Christ as what past though it hasn't happened yet um you're in Ephesians and you're reading you know Ephesians 2 6 and it says and he has raised us up and he has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ and here you all are in your pew what are you doing here you know that's see I thought you were in, in heaven with Jesus well, some say, well, no, that's, that's talking about that we are, we are right now sharing the, the glory that, that Christ had, has in his exaltation. And of course that's true, but that says we're seated in the heavenly place with Christ now. And yet here we are. How'd that happen? Well, an explanation of that is that when God makes a promise, his promises are so sure, so definitive, so absolute and infallible that when God makes a promise and it becomes yours, then it's as good as already having happened. And so a lot of times the scriptures speak in that way. So it could just be that in Colossians, Paul is just saying, yes, you were of Satan's domain. Yes. When believing in the gospel, you were, your membership was transferred from that kingdom to the new kingdom, the kingdom, which you are in training for here on earth, which will eventually be yours for a certain in the future. Now, if you want to believe in the spiritual kingdom, fine. I just think of us as kingdom saints in training here now for the future kingdom. But it's not a huge deal. Now we get into even a more slippery kingdom idea. This is the fourth kind of kingdom that if you read books, you'll discover. And that is the mystery kingdom. Sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? Very sleuthy. The mystery kingdom. Do you remember when Jesus was in Matthew 13? He gave all those parables. And, and in the in the section of Matthew in chapter uh, verses 10 through, through 11, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, why are you speaking to them in parables? I mean, they're thinking to themselves, you know, if I wanted to know some, somebody, I want something to know some, something, I would just tell them straight out. You know, I wouldn't be telling them all these parables. And you remember what Jesus said? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And so some see that as saying, you know, there is this group of people. From the time of Jesus' rejection until the rapture, These people exist in a spiritual, mystical, mystery kingdom. And these people get to get in on the mysteries of the kingdom of God. 
They would also uh, maybe quote Matthew 21, verse 43, in the parable of the landowner. If you remember, Jesus talks about the landowner who, who rents out his, his vineyard to some people to take care of it. And when he sends his servants, they kill them. He sends more servants, they kill them. He sends his son, they kill him. And of course, the servants are representative of the prophets. The son is representative of Jesus. And Jesus then says to the Jewish leaders, so what do you think will happen when that king comes back with his army? Then the Jews say he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And then Jesus says this. And so the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And they say, see, the reason Jesus started talking in parables is because he was entering into this mystery kingdom age. This age when he was, after being rejected, was beginning to turn the kingdom over to a select group. And in those mysteries were mysteries like the knowledge that the Messiah would be crucified, that the church age would begin, that we would then um, have this time period where God would primarily reach out to the Gentiles and that that would end at the rapture and that that whole time period is a mystery. Well, the problem is is you know that very well could be but i just don't see it i just don't see it i think that it's better to just understand matthew 13 11 and uh, 10 and 11 is just saying to you believers has been granted to know the mysteries and to them and is not because even gentiles today don't understand the mysteries of the kingdom don't understand the parables And even though they're Gentiles. And I think when Jesus said the kingdom of God would be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. All he was saying is, is that from before this, the Jews were primarily being offered the kingdom. And now we're going to the Gentiles. But we know the other church still had plenty of Jews. Jews are still coming to the Lord. There are Jews in this room who know the Lord. And so I think it's best to just take it that way. So I don't really see this whole mystery kingdom idea. And if you want to, that's fine. Um, If you want to see the spiritual kingdom, that's fine. Um, but I don't see the mystery kingdom five, the eternal kingdom or eternal state. Now, this is a pretty easy one too. This is after everything happens in prophecy. The whole book of revelation is played out. Jesus comes back to earth. He rules and reigns for a thousand years. The white throne judgment happens. And then we just enter into this eternal state, this eternal kingdom. That's easy. Now, let me just summarize for you. And none of this relates to our text yet directly but this is all background so you can't understand our text one there is a universal kingdom where god rules over everything there's a theocratic government or monarchy which is god ruling through a government or a king to to do his will on earth there is also a spiritual kingdom maybe that some understand represents all the saints from adam to the end of time all the believers are into kind of this spiritual pool called the spiritual kingdom others see a mystery kingdom from the rejection of jesus by the jewish leaders until the rapture of the church um they're all in there and then there is the eternal kingdom which would be that kingdom that goes on forever and ever after prophecy is played out now the good thing is is none of these things relate to what jesus is telling us to pray for and i know what you're thinking but my note page is filled up well save some space you're going to need it okay Then there is the final kingdom, which is the kingdom I want to talk about now. And there's, I found 10 synonyms for it. But even though there's 10 synonyms, it's just one thing. So relax, just relax. And sometimes it's just called the kingdom, like in our text, the kingdom. 
That's pretty simple. Secondly, sometimes it is called the kingdom of God. Sometimes it is called the kingdom of heaven. Fourthly, sometimes it is called the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ or some combination of those words. Five, sometimes it is called the Davidic kingdom because it is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that David would have a descendant who would rule and reign forever. And sometimes it is called the millennial kingdom, millennium meaning 1,000, thousand year kingdom. That is the duration of the kingdom. Sometimes it is called the mediatorial kingdom. You think, man, how do theologians think up words like this to confuse people? Um, the media, a mediator is one who goes between two people. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Jesus comes back. He sets up his kingdom. And since he is a man and God, he's the perfect mediator because he's both God and man. And he rules his kingdom, mediating that kingdom um, or ruling in that kingdom. And then sometimes it is called the messianic kingdom because... Jesus is the Messiah and it's his kingdom. And sometimes it's called the theocratic kingdom because Jesus, again, is God and he rules in a God ruled government and it's a God man. And so he fits perfectly with the theocratic idea also. And finally, some people call it Christ's earthly kingdom to make a distinction between the spiritual kingdom and the mystery kingdom, which are also kind of Christ's. So there you got it. All of that is the kingdom of Jesus coming to earth, ruling and reigning for a thousand years. But the question is, how do we know our text in Luke 11 is speaking of the kingdom of Christ when he comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years? How do we know that? Well, first, he can't be talking about the universal kingdom because it's already here. Secondly, he can't be talking about the spiritual kingdom because it already started with Adam and all the believers since then. Third, he can't be talking about the mystery kingdom because I don't think it exists. (laughs) So it narrows us down to really two kingdoms, either the kingdom of Christ or the eternal kingdom. And Since the kingdom of Christ is the first in sequence, we can assume that he's talking about that since he's praying. You remember what Matthew said, your kingdom come. And then Matthew adds that extra phrase in the disciples prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That when Christ establishes his earthly kingdom, that will be the first time God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Secondly, When he says, pray for the father's kingdom to come, because he says, father, your kingdom comes. He's talking about the father's kingdom. There's only one other place in the New Testament where Jesus actually mentions the father's kingdom. And that is in the upper room in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, where he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And he says, I'm not going to drink this, this, this uh, fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom. Well, when's that happen? When Jesus comes back to earth to set up his kingdom on earth, his thousand year kingdom. Luke, in the parallel passage in the upper room says, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So this is great. Now we know that the kingdom of my father is the kingdom of God and that both of them are the kingdom of Christ. 
When he comes to establish his reign on earth, physically, bodily ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And so that is just a great help. So now we know what we're praying for. We know what we're praying for. For instance, in Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says for this, you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. He just uses both terms there, Christ and God. So we've got it down now. So the question that what kingdom are we talking about is the kingdom. So Jesus says, I want you to pray that I come back to earth and set up my millennial thousand year messianic theocratic kingdom of father, kingdom of God kingdom. Okay. Pray that the question is, are you doing that? Well, think about this. If the highest priority prayer is to pray that God's name be hallowed, that he be glorified in everything. And the second highest priority prayer that Jesus says, I mean, Jesus is giving us the model prayer. Here's the most important thing. Here's the second most important thing is that my kingdom come. The question is, is the thing that you pray about second to the glory of God that Jesus kingdom would come? Is it even 10th on the list? We need to pray this. Jesus says we need to pray for his kingdom to come. It should be regular part of our prayer list. And we're going to find out why later at the end. We need to, as believers, be asking the father to have Jesus come back and set up his kingdom. That we should long for that, just like we long for God to be glorified, because that will bring great glory to God. Moving on. Third question. Who is involved in the kingdom? So we've answered the question, what is the kingdom? And then we've looked at the different kinds of kingdom and found out what kingdom Jesus is asking us to pray for. Now we want to talk about who is involved in the kingdom. Well, it's not Satan. Or his demons. They're not going to be there. How do we know that? Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 says. This is talking about what happens. Um, at, at During this kingdom um, time period. This thousand year reign of Christ. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Holding a key of the abyss. And a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. The serpent of old. Who was the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And it's like, oh, great. Satan and all his demons are in the pit for a thousand years. So they're not going to be in the kingdom. Well, who is going to be in the kingdom? Well, two categories of people. I mean, excluding the holy angels. First of all, and you're going to have to follow me here. It's going to be a little complex. At the end of the church age, the rapture happens. And when the rapture happens, believers are caught up together to be with the Lord in the air and given glorified bodies. All the believers who have died are all resurrected. Those who are alive will be caught up. And so we are then glorified with christ when christ returns we return with him and we rule and reign with him the question is over who 
You see, when the rapture happens, all of the believers are caught up and taken away. So only unbelievers remain on earth. When the second coming happens, all of the unbelievers are taken away and only believers remain. And now if you're asking, well, how is that if they're all taken and they're all left and well, why? Because during the seven year tribulation, many Jews and Gentiles will come to Christ. And so those people, after the rapture, we enter into this period of tribulation. And at that time, the Antichrist rises to power. There is great judgments brought upon the earth. Many come to Christ. And when Jesus comes back, those mortals, those believers who are alive on earth, when Jesus returns, enter into the kingdom of Christ as mortals. And those will be in the kingdom. We will be glorified and we will be ruling and reigning over those mortals. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, but where, where does it tell us about this rapture thing? Well, the first text that mentions it is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter 15 is about the resurrection. And Paul tells us something really cool at the end. He says, Let me just let you in on a little mystery, a little secret here. He says that you need to know whenever Paul uses the term mystery, he's saying, I'm going to reveal something now that's new and super cool. And he says this, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we're not all going to die. But we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. Now, that is cool that all of a sudden, you know, here you are, you're going through your your life and you're you're in a traffic jam on the freeway. And all of a sudden you're with Christ glorified. Oh, would that be cool? Just leave your car down there. Let somebody else deal with it. They can have it. Yeah. The rapture, the catching away. But you say, well, that doesn't give a lot of detail. No, but Paul does give more detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul is letting the Thessalonians know that they have not missed the day of the Lord because false teachers have come in and said, you you missed it. You missed the resurrection. He said, no, you didn't. If you (laughs) went through that, you would know because you'd be with Jesus in glorified bodies. And this is what he says, starting in verse 13 of first Thessalonians four, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's saying when, when God comes back to earth, he's going to bring with him those who are resurrected, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That is believers. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. This is not the second coming. This is the coming of the Lord for his church will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Oh, man, that is cool. 
I mean, all of a sudden, there will be a day. It can happen any moment, any time. See, Christ can't come back right now because we have to go through the tribulation. But at any time, he can come back to rapture out the church. That is what is called the doctrine of imminence. So at any time, Christ can come back. And we will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. And when Jesus returns to earth, what's going to happen is we're going to be with Jesus and he's going to give us assignments so that we're ruling with him over those people who enter in and multiply during his thousand year reign. Those people who came to Christ during the tribulation or tribulation saints. Paul speaking to Timothy in second Timothy two twelve says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Is that cool or what? And, and who is it who reigns? What kind of people reign? Kings, queens, princes, princesses. And when you come to know Christ as your savior, you are adopted into the family of God. And believe me, if there was ever any royalty, it's God. And now you're part of God's family, which makes you royalty. And therefore you reign. In Revelation 2.26, Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. I mean, that's you. If you know Christ, think about that. You're saying, man, I don't know how to rule nations. You will. You will. In Revelation 5.10, the elders and living creatures are singing a new song about those redeemed by the blood of Christ. And they sing, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So not only kings and queens, they're also priestly kings and queens. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and verse 6, speaking of what happens after the tribulation, right before the kingdom of Christ is established on earth. John says that I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had worshiped the beast in his image. Uh, no, those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or right hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these things. The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I mean, that's about as clear as you can get. So who's going to be in the kingdom? Jesus is going to be in the kingdom. Satan's demons are not going to be there. Glorified believers will be ruling and reigning with Christ. And those who came to Christ during the tribulation will enter into the tribulation. And there they will be ruled over by us. Okay. I want you to see if you can all get this stuck in your head. I thought, now how can I get them to do this? We're going to do a little prophetic arts and crafts. Get out a pen, get out a piece of paper, and try and find a piece of paper that you can draw the longest line on it. Oh, you turn the paper sideways. I don't care what you do. Find it, any kind of piece of paper. You know, if you have a blank page in your Bible, you want to try and do this. But, hey, man, we're going for the longest line you can find here. We're going to write small. When I say small, I mean small. We're going to pack a lot of data in here. I don't want to don't you go start hearing scoffing at the end because you ran out of space. I'm warning you right now. We're going to put some information in here. We're going to give you a little prophetic timeline. So draw yourself... Uh, uh, line the width of your paper, the width of your paper, and to the far left, 
the far left, above the line to the far left, draw a little cross, kind of like that one there, a little cross and right above it, right, maybe even at an angle or wherever it fits, maybe below it, the death of Christ, death of Christ. Okay, so now you should have a line on the far left, the death of Christ with a little cross to symbolize that. Immediately to the right and very close to it, write church age, church age, church age. To the right of church age, draw a little arrow pointing up from the line and label that rapture, rapture. And then to the right of the little arrow pointing up labeled rapture, try and write this in as small a space as you can, maybe some above the line, maybe some below, maybe abbreviate it seven year tribulation or trib maybe then to the right of that right after the seven year trib draw a little arrow pointing down towards the line and above that right And you might want to do 2ND here. Second coming. Second coming. Now, come on, follow me here. Try and get this right now. I don't want to see any bad drawings. And we're checking. All these will be checked and graded. Um, I want you to draw another arrow in the shape of an arc connecting the top of the arrow pointing up. And then arc it over to the arrow pointing down. Arcing over through the the seven-year tribulation. A little tiny arc there, which says that arc there, a little arrow. So you see the rapture pointing arrow up. And then you have the second coming arrow down. And another little arrow connecting the two. I'll explain it in a minute. Then to the right of the arrow pointing down. You can write thousand year kingdom above the line there. And if you want to, if you have room, if you can stack them in there, you can put all the other synonyms in there. Kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, kingdom of the father, messianic kingdom, theocratic kingdom, Uh, whatever you want, throw it all in there. If you want to just label it all. Keep writing small. We're not done yet. Then you've got. Now what you should have here in your paper. Let's do a little review in case some of you got a little confused. We've got the little cross. It says Jesus's death. Then you have the church age. Then you got the arrow pointing up above that. It says rapture. Then you've got the little arc uh, arc and the arc is going over to an arrow pointing down. And in between that you have seven year trib. The little arrow pointing down is the second coming. And after that it says thousand year kingdom Kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, kingdom of the Father, messianic kingdom, theocratic kingdom. Okay, all right. You got that down. Mediatorial kingdom, if you know how to spell it. Um, So you've got that. Now, right after that, draw a little chair. Actually, you can draw a throne if you want. But chairs work good for thrones. 
because not a lot of people are good at drawing thrones and they end up looking like chairs anyways. Um, and then you can write above the little chair, great white throne judgment, or you might have to put that some of that below and some of that above. And then if you go to a little bit past that, you will have eternal state. And that is every major prophetic event to come. Let's just walk through your little chart there. Look at your little chart and this is what you should have. You've got the little cross, which is the death of Christ, followed by the church age, which ends at the rapture where the saints are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Then ensues a seven-year time period called the tribulation where the antichrist rises to power where the earth is has all the judgments described in revelation chapter 6 through 19 you can read all about it in great detail at the end of that time jesus then comes back to earth at his second coming and the reason there's a little arc there that little arc arrow is because even though we're raptured at the beginning of the tribulation we return with christ at his second coming and for those of you who don't like riding horses You're going to be on a horse. And so you come back with Christ to earth at the second coming. And there Jesus will stand in the Mount of Olives. The the wicked will be separated. The goats from the sheep, the wheat from the tares. You will have this this. This time where God sends forth his angels and they will separate believers from unbelievers. Now, follow me here, because this is where some people get confused. When you're reading in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 41, Jesus says this, and he's talking about the end of the tribulation right at the time of the second coming. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, another left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. This is not a rapture text. This is the separation of believers from unbelievers at the end of the tribulation. Those removed are unbelievers to be executed, cast into hell, where they will then wait for judgment at the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years. And so what happens is the believers then who have come to Christ during the tribulation then enter into the thousand year reign of Christ as mortals and they begin to live a long time. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 65 verses 20 through 23. This is just fascinating. Isaiah says no longer will there be any will be in it that is the kingdom of Christ here on earth an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100 you die at the age of 100 oh that is a pity they were so young they were babies really and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of a curse you know I wonder why he died I mean he was only 98 And they will build houses and inhabit them. And they will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Gardening, that's a good part. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. And as a lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. And they... 
are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. He's talking about just this total prosperity when Jesus is reigning on earth and the curse is lifted and people start living like they did before the flood. You know, Methuselah over 900 years old. And some people will probably live through the whole length of the entire kingdom, all thousand years and never die. And Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, it says of the kingdom. And just think about this right now. I mean, if you've ever been to the zoo, this is a marvel. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. By the way, leopards, you love to eat goats. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. And also the cow and bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper, in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Ooh. Just total transformation of the world where the curse is lifted, Satan's gone, and all of that aggression in the animals that has come as a result of the curse will be gone. And you've got the little infant over there, instead of eating dirt, they're playing, you know, with the king cobra. Honey, don't hurt the cobra. (laughs) Honey, don't, don't pull the lion's ears. That's not kind. And so that's how it's going to be. And what will happen is, is what will be fulfilled is what is called the Davidic covenant, the promise made to David. Here it is in first Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. God promised David this. When your days are fulfilled that you must go with your fathers, I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. And if you want to read about the temple during the millennium, you can read it in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. It's detailed in great detail. He goes on to say, Verse 13, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not make my loving kind, I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took from the one who is before you, speaking of Saul. But I will settle him in his house and my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David, the king, he goes on and what's neat is, is you just have this incredible picture of David's descendant ruling and reigning in a temple that he builds on earth forever and ever. And that person is Jesus. And it happens during the thousand year reign of Christ. Isaiah 9, 7, you know, that text that comes before, right after the, the, you know, the, the, the Christmas text, you know, unto us a child will be born and a son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and goes on to say right after that, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, God promises a righteous shepherd to Israel who were inflicted with ungodly shepherds. And he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. That's Jesus. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue and it had the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and then bronze and iron and iron and clay feet. And what was it standing on? A stone not cut out with the hands of man, a stone that crushes all the other kingdoms. Daniel interprets it saying in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and the kingdom will be not left And the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all those kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. That is Jesus' kingdom, which will begin in a thousand years. And after it finishes, it will be a recreation of the heavens and the earth. And he will continue to reign forever and ever. You remember what the angel Gabriel told Mary about Jesus in Luke 1, 32 and 33. Let me remind you, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those texts, it makes me excited. It makes me excited. Now, you might be wondering, why would God have us pray thy kingdom come? I mean, what is the practical purpose? Well, besides the obvious, God tells us to. Here are some things. Why pray thy kingdom come? Well, first of all, it's God's will, and we need to pray according to God's will. Secondly, because we want Jesus to rule the earth in righteousness. Third, Because we want to see the wicked judged and justice established on earth. Four, because we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Five, because we long to see Jesus. Six, because it will motivate us to live holy lives, knowing that Jesus has come back any moment in the middle of whatever you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. So don't do it. Seven, because it will motivate us to have godly priorities, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Eight, because it will motivate us to share the gospel with the lost, knowing that Christ could come back for his church. And then the world will be entered into a tribulation period of great catastrophe when most of the world's population will die. And nine, because it will give us peace and help us not fret or be anxious when we see the world around us growing from bad to worse. And those are just some of the practical reasons when you pray, send Jesus to set up his kingdom. It's a life transforming prayer because all of those things are imported into that request. So as you leave here today, keep praying your 10 minutes a day and don't stop. Increase it if you want, but don't cut back. Don't forget that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a loving Heavenly Father who just takes pleasure in talking with you. He wants to hear from you. 
pray that God's name would be glorified in everything, especially your life. And pray that God's kingdom would come. It will change your life. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you tell us exactly how to pray and what to pray for. Father, we do pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that the rapture would occur, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we would be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air and thus always be with the Lord, that we would be glorified and freed from sin, freed from our sin-cursed bodies, that we would rule and reign with you. We would come back on white horses at your second coming to earth. We would see you stand in the Mount of Olives and remanufacture the terrain and lift the curse and throw Satan and demons to the abyss. That we then would see the great prosperous reign of the king and we would be part of all of that. See people growing old after hundreds of years and the earth just flourishing under your righteous reign. And then the white throne judgment when sin and death and Satan and the false prophet and all those who hated you so as not to repent will be judged and we will enter into an eternal state and experience things eye has not seen or ear heard or even entered in the heart of man. That we would be rewarded and that sufferings of this present world would not be worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in the saints. Oh, Father, help us to pray for your kingdom. We ask it. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.